0: God's word from Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up and did not see corruption a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You may be seated.
1: Thanks for reading our passage for us. Harry, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 13 if you haven't already done so. If you are visiting with us this morning, we've been in the book of Acts. We have made it to chapter 13. We have seen how God has begun to grow His church. The church started in Jerusalem and how it's kind of expanded out. And now we come to chapter 13, and we see Paul uh, preaching in a place called Antioch. So uh, we uh, will look at that together. But first, let me ask uh, the Lord's help uh, this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy it is to be here. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts, Lord, to hear your word taught, Lord, we recognize that there are many uh, other things, uh, Lord, that have, uh, that are fighting for our attention, uh, Lord, things that we experienced this past week or things that are coming up this week. Uh, but, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us uh, in these next few minutes to focus on your Word. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you, by your Spirit, would apply it to our hearts. Father, And I pray that you would give me uh, helpfulness and uh, clarity and faithfulness to your Word. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll move this so I can see everybody. Um, so I wonder if you have ever uh, been in a situation where you just felt like you were out of place, where you're in a group of people and you realize I'm in a group of people, but these are not my people. Every group has certain markers that set them apart from other groups, and that's true on a national level, but it's also true on just the familial and friend level as well. I remember the, the first time that I went to Joni's house to celebrate Christmas, and her entire family was there. And Joni and I were dating at this point, and I remember going thinking that I had a pretty good idea of who Joni was. We'd been dating for, I guess, um, at that point, we had been dating for a year. And so I had, uh, again, a pretty good idea of who this woman was. And I remember uh, she comes from a large family. She's got four siblings. Uh, three, two of them live in Seattle, Washington. One lives in North Carolina. And so this was the first time that I had seen Joni and her whole family together. And I remember that Christmas thinking... There's a lot about Joni that I don't understand, that I don't know. Uh, That's still true. Uh, Almost five years later, I'm still learning new things about her. But uh, that Christmas, I became aware of uh, family history. I became aware of family jokes that I didn't understand. uh, And I became aware of family traditions. They have a way of celebrating Christmas that's different than my family. Uh, Our passage this morning is is a bit like going to someone else's family event and and observing. Uh, We see Paul preach uh, one of, I think it's, it's his longest sermon in the book of Acts. And what's unique is that this sermon is preached to Jews, and Paul himself is a Jew. If you know anything about the New Testament and the Apostle Paul, Paul is known for being the apostle to the Gentiles, And we'll see that in the rest of Acts. But this morning, we see Paul preach to Jews. Himself is a Jew. And so he speaks to Jews like a Jew. And so he says things that we may miss. He references things that we may not know where he's referencing. But his audience, the people that he's preaching to, would have understood intimately the things that he was referencing and, and understood the weight of what he Was saying. And so while there are twists and turns, references, allusions to to things in the Old Testament, uh, we, we, we could get lost in that. But I think Luke's purpose in preserving this sermon, I think is actually rather simple. I think Luke's purpose is that it does not matter your background. It does not matter where you come from, whether you come from a religious family. Whether you're born a Jew or born a Gentile, it does not matter what your background is, but you must put your trust in Christ alone. Because Christ alone is the promised Savior from the Old Testament. And so I think that's what Luke wants us to see. It's what I hope you'll see this morning that no matter your background, you must trust in Christ alone. Because only Christ is the Savior of the world, through whom salvation goes to the ends of the earth. So uh, first, uh, we'll see that our God has made a covenant, a promise to send a Savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus. And so our passage this morning, it picks up with Paul and Barnabas in their missionary travels. Luke tells us that they traveled from Paphos to Perga. And there John Mark, who had joined the crew at the end of chapter 12, left them and returned to Jerusalem. And then from Perga they arrived in Antioch in Pisidia. Now in the ancient world there were many different cities named Antioch. And so in order to distinguish which Antioch you were talking about, you would attach the location of it. So here we have Pisidian Antioch. And Pisidian Antioch was located in the Roman province of Galatia, or in modern-day Turkey. It was an important city politically and militarily, and it also had a significant Jewish population. And so, naturally, Paul and his companions, they go to the synagogue on a Sabbath day where the Jews would have gathered. And at the synagogue, they would have read from the Old Testament. Would have, they had two readings from the law and from the prophets. From the, the first five books of the Bible, and then from the prophets who preached that law to the Israelites. And at the end of that reading, one of the rulers stands up and says, Does anyone have a word of encouragement? It's what you call a gospel opportunity handed to you on a silver platter. God's word is read, and someone says, Do you have something to say? Paul says, Yes, matter of fact, I do have something to say. So Paul stands up and begins to preach. Again, it's a unique sermon because it's preached primarily to a Jewish audience. However, Luke gives us hints that it's not only Jews who are present. He says that there are those who fear God. That language of those who fear God would be a group of people called the God-fearers. They were Gentiles. They were not Jews, but they were people who had converted or were on the verge of converting To Judaism, and so they were gathered as well to hear the reading from the law and the prophets. And so, uh, but nevertheless, Paul is preaching primarily to a Jewish audience. And Paul's sermon has two major movements. First, you'll notice that Paul recounts Israel's history, and he focuses on the promise that God made to David to put someone on his throne forever. So that's the first movement you see is Paul recounting Israel's history, focusing specifically on God's promise to send a Messiah king to sit on the throne of David forever. David being the the most famous and best of the Israel's kings. And the second is that Paul goes on to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises, that Jesus is, in fact, the one who's come to save the world. And again, going to to Paul's first movement, you'll notice that Paul's summary of Israel's history is, is actually very brief. If you remember... Back in Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen gave a sermon. At the end of his sermon, he was actually stoned because of the things that he said. But if you remember from that passage, Stephen's recalling of Israel's history took up almost 60 verses. He spends a lot of time detailing Israel's history. But Paul here covers it rather quickly. He says that God made promises to the fathers, to Abraham. And then he moves to the imprisonment of the Israelites in Egypt. And then to their being delivered. And then to their 40 years in the desert. And then to their 10 years conquering the land of Canaan. So Paul covers all that ground rather quickly and then moves to the Israelites' demand for a king. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations around them, and so they asked God to give them a king. God answered their request by giving them Saul. Saul ruled for 40 years, and then God removed Saul and and set up David. And Paul writes that God says about David, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Paul is referencing here Psalm 89, verse 20, which says, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. So if you were to go back and read all of Psalm 89, the the theme that would dominate that psalm would be God's covenant promise to David. David. To set someone on his throne and establish it forever. And our call to worship this morning is called an everlasting covenant. So, again, what might seem rather brief, and us figuring out how did Paul go from David to Jesus, his audience would have understood what he was saying by referring to David. And talking about God's favor being put on David was also an allusion to this larger promise of the expected Messiah. And so Paul says that God has fulfilled that promise by bringing to Israel a Savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus. And so that's, in large part, the the first part of Paul's sermon. He's summarizing Israel's history, but he's doing it for a specific purpose. He wants to focus in on the promises that God made to Israel, specifically to send someone to sit on David's throne to be the Messiah King of God's people. So that's movement one. And then he ends that by saying, and God has done that in Jesus well, Paul doesn't just stop there. He then goes on to prove that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. So you see that shift begin in verse 26. And Paul gives two lines of proof or, or two different kinds of evidences. The first focuses on Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. And Paul says that those in Jerusalem did not recognize Jesus as He performed miracle after miracle and taught with authority like no one had taught in the temple. Paul says they they didn't recognize Him. It's not that they didn't know who Jesus was. It's not that they couldn't pick Jesus out of a crowd. It's that they didn't understand that the miracles He was doing and the authority with which He was teaching actually were demonstrating that He was the promised Savior. They didn't recognize Him. Although they read about Him every Sunday. That's the irony. And instead of recognizing Him as Messiah and Lord and worshiping Him, Paul says they put Him to death. And Paul says that they took him down from a tree. Or took him down from the cross. Again, we understand the cross in a particular way, but Paul's audience would have understood the Old Testament background to that. The Old Testament said that anyone who died on a tree died as one cursed by God. So Paul isn't just saying that he died. He's saying he died a Specific kind of death. The death that he died was that of a criminal, that of one who is cursed by God. Paul will then shift to to talk about why that is important for them when he calls on them to repent. But Jesus didn't stay dead, God raised him from the dead. And this really is the the stake that Paul drives in the ground in his sermon. Everything in his sermon hinges on the reality that Jesus was raised by God from the dead. And so this is the second line of reasoning that Paul takes. He goes to the prophets in the Old Testament. And he looks at what did the prophets in the Old Testament say that the future Messiah King would do. And Paul goes there to say, they predicted it here, Jesus has fulfilled it now. And so Paul gives three Old Testament quotations in this part of the sermon. The first is a quotation from Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. Anticipating this future God-King to come and rule and reign and subdue His enemies. And so sometimes when we talk about Jesus being the only begotten Son of God, we, that's uh, language that we use to refer to His eternal coexistence with the Father. Um, but here... In this particular psalm, it's used to refer to Jesus being exalted as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And then the second quotation that he gives is from Isaiah 55. He says in verse 34... I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And what's interesting there is that the you in that verse is actually plural. And in the context of Isaiah 55, which we read this morning, that was a promise to Israel, God's people. And so Paul is saying that Israel was to receive the blessings of David. They were to receive the blessings of this promised king. But how are they to receive those blessings? That's what Paul wants his audience to understand. And so he offers one final quotation from Psalm 16, which says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. The link between Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16 is one of holiness the holy blessings of David that are intended to come to Israel will only come to Israel through the Holy One who did not see corruption. And Jesus, Paul is saying, is the only one who has not seen corruption, has not experienced the decaying rot of the grave. David experienced that. But Jesus, God raised Jesus from the grave. So Paul's saying to his Jews that are present, you want the holy and blessing promises of David, you must receive the Holy One who sits on David's throne. The blessings are tied to the King. You don't get the blessings without receiving the King. You don't get salvation without receiving Jesus. And so that's Paul's final appeal in verses 38-41. through It is only through Christ that your sins are forgiven. He says in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Jesus mentions no words. There's no other option. There's no other way to heaven, it is through Jesus and having your sins forgiven. And this matches how Peter has preached in Acts. Peter says in Acts 4.2, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is through Jesus. In order To receive the blessings of David, you must have your sins forgiven. Now, Paul's statements here may not come as a surprise to any of us if you have any familiarity with church or Christianity. Of course, we know Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We've come to expect that. But remember who Paul's talking to here. He's talking to Jews. Jews. He's talking to people in the synagogue who would have understood themselves to be the people of God, those that God had set apart. So the command to have your sins forgiven might have been a bit more jarring for them as it is for us this morning. But Paul has, of course, already hinted at this. This was the purpose of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the prophet who came before Jesus, pronouncing or proclaiming repentance, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He's doing that in Jerusalem to to Jews, saying, repent because the kingdom of God is near. The king has come. Again, Paul's not speaking to those that were entrenched in polytheism, polygamy adultery, murderers. He's speaking to Jews outside of Jerusalem, holding fast to their faith, gathering in the synagogue to hear the law and the prophets read. He's talking to the religious people here. And he says, even to you, your sins can only be forgiven through Jesus Forgiveness does not come through osmosis. Merely hearing the Word taught does not save you. It does not forgive your sins. You must believe in Jesus. And Paul says that by believing in Jesus, they have their sins forgiven and they are freed from everything which they could not be freed from the law of Moses the word freed can also be translated as justified. If you're following along in a a copy of God's Word, if you're looking at the ESV, then you may notice there's a footnote there. And the footnote will tell you that that word freed can also be translated as justified. Which helps us understand that what Paul's talking about in his sermon, what he's driving at is justification by faith alone. Justification is is a big word that means it's the legal declaration of God wherein God does not count your sin against you and instead imputes the righteousness of Christ to you. And so in our psalm uh, for our prayer time this morning, we read, Blessed is the man whose sin is not counted against him. That's the first part of justification is to not have your sin counted against you. The other part is to have Christ's righteousness given to you so that when God looks at you, He sees Christ's righteousness. Paul draws this out most clearly in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4. I would encourage you sometime this week, maybe with your community group, read those two chapters, Romans 3, Romans 4. Paul fleshes this teaching of justification by faith out there. God is able not to count your sins against you and he's able to credit. He's able to give Christ's righteousness because of Christ's death on a cross. Because Christ died on the tree. There on the cross, he satisfied God's demands of justice. So that Paul will say in Romans 3 that God is not able to be both just, does not overlook sin, he does not excuse it, He punishes it. His justice demands that he punishes it. And on the cross, he executed justice on his son so that God is now able to become the justifier and save people, forgive them of their sins. Paul says that by believing in Jesus, they are freed from everything that they could not be freed from in the law of Moses. The law of Moses might refer to as the Old Testament. The law of Moses was intended to reveal the depths of the sinful human heart. It was like a, like a schoolmaster. It was intended to bring those in the Old Testament to see their need for forgiveness to consistently put in front of them God's standard to remind them that they don't measure up. They need a perfect substitute. It was to remind them that they're like a captive prisoner chained to sin, unable to break free from it. And Paul says that believe in Jesus is to be freed from that. It is to have those chains gone. And not just have the chains gone, but God raise you up and put royal clothes on you to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. And then it's to live in joyful submission to the One who has set you free. And so Paul warns his listeners. He quotes from another prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk. And by quoting the prophet Habakkuk, he effectively tells his listeners, don't be like these people. Don't be like these people in Habakkuk's day who missed what God was doing because they refused to believe it. They refused to believe the prophet's message and therefore they perished. For you here this morning, you must hear Paul's message to you. You must realize your need for forgiveness. Maybe you're here today and you've, you've pushed off turning aside from your sin. You said, maybe I, I'll do that later. Friend, don't push that off anymore. Heed Paul's warning. Believe in the Lord Jesus and have your sins forgiven. Be freed from everything which you have tried so hard to be freed from unsuccessfully. For those of us here this morning that that we have believed in Jesus, we have trusted in Him to, to cleanse us from our sins. Be reminded afresh that God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. There is nothing that you have done to earn that. It's not your good church attendance. It's not your faithful giving, your faithful serving, your integrity at your job, the success of your kids. All those things may be good, but they do not save. Christ alone saves And if you have been set free, then live as a freedman. Live as one who has been set free. Paul says in Romans 6, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. If Christ has indeed set you free, then live free. You don't have to go Moping around, hanging your head in defeat. If Christ has set you free, then you are free indeed, and you can live a holy life because you're free. Christ has set you free. And Paul confronted his Jewish audience with their need for forgiveness. They were hoping in the law to save them, and Paul's telling them that you can never be saved through law keeping. You need a perfect substitute. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. You need Him. So believe in Him. It's only through Christ alone that you can be saved. And that means that there are only two options to this message. There are only two options to the good news that we call the gospel. You can either reject or you can rejoice Those are your two options. There's no middle. Rejoicing or rejection. That's exactly what we see here. It's what we've come to expect as we've looked at the book of Acts. You see in verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So Luke tells us that Jews and and those devout converts, those God-fearers, those Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, now they had become converted to Christ. Don't miss the power of the Gospel. Luke highlights the fact that they were devout converts. They were all in Judaism. And the the gospel came to them, and they said, we're all in now on Jesus. And yet, that is one response. It's to rejoice. It's to hear the gospel, receive it, and be glad. The other option is to reject it. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. These Jews are filled with jealousy and they begin to revile Paul. I don't know if you've ever been reviled, but reviling is not this simple, offhanded, mean comment that someone said to you. Reviling is is to hurl malicious insults your way. Designed to cut you down. Designed to to silence you. And yet Paul makes it clear in verse 46 that they are not rejecting Paul. They're rejecting the Word of God. By rejecting Paul's message, they were rejecting the Gospel. And by rejecting the Gospel, they were rejecting the promised Savior. And by rejecting the promised Savior, they were rejecting God Himself. There is no middle ground. Rejection or rejoicing. And this polarity between rejoicing and rejection is not just true in terms of Christ, it's true in other areas of life as well. Some of you are are mountain people. And the thought of spending eight hours a day on a hot, sandy beach... Your one week of vacation every year, that sounds like torture. Give me the mountains. For the rest of us, we delight in that. Woo! That's a good vacation. Eight hours a day on the beach, reading a book. I love that. And sports fans, you have your team. You don't pull for your rival, you pull for your team. In the face of rejection, Paul tells them that they've judged themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. By rejecting Paul, they've rejected God. So Paul now says that he will go to the Gentiles. And Paul says in verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, as we have looked at the book of Acts, we have looked at how Acts 1.8 has framed this entire book where Jesus told His disciples that there will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And thus far, we've seen that work out geographically. And yet here, when Paul quotes from Isaiah 49, a shift takes place. We now begin to think about the gospel going to the ends of the earth as it goes to the Gentiles. Rather than being geographic, the shift now becomes ethnographic. Paul understands that passage in Isaiah to to apply to him. So God has made Paul a light for the Gentiles. What does it mean for Paul to be a light to the Gentiles? It means that he is to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. To go to the ends of the earth is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So yes, we want to be concerned about location. We want the gospel to go to places that it has never gone before, where people have never had an opportunity to receive the good news of Christ. But we also realize that every time we share the gospel, that is the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And so as we continue in the book of Acts, we will see that. We will see the gospel go to the ends of the earth as Paul proclaims the gospel to Gentiles after Gentile after Gentile. And Paul says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many and as As many were as pointed to eternal life, believed. Again, we see the comfort that that doctrine of election is intended to bring. God has not failed in his promises. God will not fail in his promises. He will bring his children home. And so I'm sure there are some of us here this morning, as we've been studying the book of Acts and as we've been seeing the, the gospel go and as have challenged us to, to think of one person and, and pray for that one person. And to varying degrees, we feel a sense of weight for our friends and our family members for them to hear and believe in the gospel. Friends, I want us to see from this passage what God expects of us. God does not expect us to convert or to save anyone. That was not Paul's job. His job was to be a mouthpiece. God handed him an opportunity on a silver platter and he took it. That's what God asks of his people. And so may we pray that God would give us those kinds of opportunities for our friends and our coworkers to ask us a question. And May we in those moments be ready to give the good news of the gospel. So no matter what your background is, no matter where you come from this morning, no matter what kind of week you had, our problem is all the same and our solution is the same. We must believe in Christ alone because He alone is the promised Savior of the world. We're going to transition now into preparing our hearts to take communion. If you're visiting with us, this is something that we do every week. Communion is a time uh, that we remember and reflect on the things that we've been talking about today in our passage. Where we remember what Christ has done in order to forgive sins. We read a few verses for the forgiveness of sins. So communion is a time where we take bread and we take juice and we do so in remembering the the bread reminding us of, of Christ's body, the juice reminding us of Christ's blood. His body broken, His blood shed. That was the cost to forgive sins. And so if you are here this morning and you are trusting in Jesus, you have believed in Him to forgive you of your sins, then, my friends, the table is open for you. When I pray, you can walk out those doors and grab the elements as you feel God lead you. If you're here this morning and uh, you would not say yourself, you would not say that you're a Christian, you're, you're still trying to figure out what it means to, to follow Jesus, then, uh, one, I would, I would love to talk to you after the service, Uh, Be happy to discuss what it means to follow Jesus. But I would ask during this time that you just remain seated. Uh, And I say that not to to shame anyone, uh, but this time of communion is just a time for Christians. Uh, And so I would invite you to just remain seated during this time and and use this as an opportunity to reflect on, on your life. My prayer would be that if you're here and you haven't trusted in Christ, that you would do that. You would not delay And that one day soon you would come and take of this meal with us. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. But God, you've spoken to us. And more than that, God, you've sent your son, Jesus, to pay for sins on the cross. Lord, we thank you that he did not stay dead, but God, you raised him on the third day, securing eternal life for your children. Father, may you help us to be a people that are filled with the greatness of this message. Lord, may you do this for your good, or for your glory and for our good. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.